So I want to thank Pastor Omer and Pastor Tom for continuing our teaching series while gone and thank the worship teams for continuing and for all of you for continuing and uh, being Spark because Spark is bigger than any one person or any team of people. And I think Junior is still with his family uh, celebrating now back here on this side of the States, more feasts, um, and then we'll be back again next weekend with us. So grateful to all of you. Let's pray and turn our hearts and worship towards the study of God's word. Amen. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for bringing us together this Sunday afternoon. Thank you for reminding us how huge the body of Christ is, how it expands across languages and cultures and time and around the world. And as we study these letters written 2,000 years ago, may you unite us in our hearts and in spirit with the people of God then and the people of God today as we continue to wrestle and seek to find your way, Jesus, in this world. We bless you for this time together and bless you for the power of your Holy Spirit in this place. Tune our hearts to yours. Awaken our spirit to your spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears that hear as we pursue you and your way in this world, Jesus. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. All right, today we're going to conclude our Peter series, and we are going to talk about his life, which is a life forever changed. As I was reflecting on our past series that we started towards the end of May, we started with Pentecost Shavuot. Look, I've put up our nice BarkCast podcast icons in case you want to catch up in your after hours. And you know, you can make us all speak faster or slower as you so desire. So speed us up or slow us down. Um, I like to speed us up. But if you want to go through, we kind of talked about Pentecost Shavuot. We discussed who is Peter anyway? Why do we care about this guy? Who does Peter say Jesus is? We talked about fish, rooster, and sheep, a shepherd in Jerusalem where we focused on some miracles. Uh, Pastor Omer talked about dream bigger and, and focused on Gentiles coming in. Um, Kevin talked about the fiercely faithful of Peter's life, focusing on identity, fidelity, and teleology. And if you don't know what that is, he explains it all at the beginning of that message. And then Pastor Tom talked about slaves submitting to our masters, really? And last week, Pastor Omer, because love covers a multitude of sins. So today we're going to sort of overview a little bit, just to remind ourselves where we've been, and then talk about how Peter's going to end his communication with the churches. His is a life forever changed. If you'll remember when we talked about Peter, we talked about how his life at the beginning, his name that he was known by was Shimon, but Jesus changes his name to Peter, but maybe he also changes his, meter, his name from Peter to also Kepha, which can mean rock, which also can be Cephas and um, Petros and son of John or son of Jonah. So we talked about all of that. He's a, a guy with multiple names and Kepha or Petros meaning rock coming from a particular incident that he has with Jesus that we discussed. Peter comes from a very small, modest town on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, the north, slightly eastern portion of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a simple, quiet village life focused on the regular mundane details of village life. In fact, watching a lot of the culture and community we were part of in America and Samoa and Samoa the past two weeks, it was reminding me people go down and fish and then they sell their fish and you drive by on the side of the road or people go and they you know, have their coconuts and then they're selling their coconuts by the side of the road. Life is simple. It 
moves on and it's focused on the land and focused on the sea and what it can bring to your household and to one another. And it's a lot of family and a lot of family time, right? Nobody has their televisions blaring from their Capernaum household here, right? We all, our kids are playing and that's kind of the entertainment for the day. You know, when it's down on the screen, in fact, I don't know if you grew up this way, but I remember when we didn't have screens that we could carry around in our pockets um, and we only had one with only certain shows and you actually get up and turn the dial. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, and I got to watch whatever was on which was often something black and white, like Sunday mornings, Shirley Temple again, or the Andy Griffith Show, or I Love Lucy, right? But that community, this community in Peter's Day, focused on the people there, not, edu not entertaining themselves all day long. We talked about how in the Gospel of Mark particularly, but actually all the Gospels, that Peter serves as a prototype for all the disciples, and that many of us might have a tendency to try to figure out which disciple are we most like, and run them through a Myers-Briggs text or an Enneagram or something like that, and we'll decide that Peter is Peter the Loud or Peter the Brash or Peter the Braggart or Peter the Fisherman or Peter the Doubter or the Proclaimer or the Denier or the Sword Wielder. But we talked also about how he's more than any of those one things, right? He's also shepherd and witness and teacher and preacher and baptizer, reformer, wrestler, and believer. When Peter is asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? Who am I? Peter at Caesarea Philippi in the midst of all this pagan worship and goat god nonsense and everything else shouts out to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christ, the son of the living God, not this. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of a dove or son of Jonah or son of John, depending upon the textual variant you want to hang out with, because that was not revealed to you by humans, but that was revealed to you by God which I always take great comfort in that verse. Anyone, anytime somebody's trying to say, well, how many people have you, you know, I don't know, tried to convert to Christianity or led to Jesus or all the nice ways we want to say that. I'm like, listen, it can't be revealed by me. I can get in the way of it, but I can't reveal it. It has to be revealed by God, and I'm just going to relax and trust the Holy Spirit because Jesus said so, so I'm cool with that. We moved on, and we talked about how Peter is a fisherman, but then a rooster crows after he denies Jesus three times, and then he becomes a shepherd. And the craziness of that, right? The madness of that rooster crowing and counting his sin. And that there's a church in Jerusalem where you can find directions everywhere you go that remembers his failure, remembers the fact that three times he denied that he knew Jesus. The disciple, the number one disciple of Jesus, denies that he knows his rabbi. But we also talked about how this church is not just a reminder of Peter's failure, but it's a reminder of, of Christ's grace. Because not long after this moment does Jesus show up as Peter sort of given up everything and decided, I can't, I can't follow Jesus I mean, I don't, I've, I've failed entirely in, and Jesus shows up at the shore of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection and causes a miraculous catch of fish and says, do you love me? And asks him three times, do you love me more than these? Is it more than the fish? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then graze my lambs. Shimon, bar Yochanan, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Shimon, bar Yochanan, do you love me? And he was hurt that Jesus had questioned him a third time. And Shimon answered, 
Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus, Yeshua, said, graze my sheep. And in essence, he turns to this one who has doubted and failed and been publicly humiliated and had all of the mess of the whole thing, tried to cut off a guy's, cut off a guy's ear or tried to cut off a guy's ear, depending upon all that. And Pastor Omar touched on that last week. And he says to him, be like me. You haven't fallen so far that you can't still be like me. And failure does not disqualify us from following Jesus. Amen. I'm going to be Pentecost. Amen. All right. Good job. Good job. Make me feel at home. Okay. So Jesus says, be a shepherd. And Peter does do that. He goes back to Jerusalem and he starts shepherding in Jerusalem. Like he leaves that life of fishing. And he goes back and he starts shepherding in Jerusalem. And at the beginning of this Acts chapter 2 conversation, Peter and all of the disciples are in Jerusalem and we had a big conversation. And on the feast day of Shavuot or Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, when they're required, mandated by Torah to be in Jerusalem for the worship of God at the temple which is the commemoration of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai with fire and thunder and voices. They're there. And on that day of Shavuot, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And we talked about how a lot of people think that this is the upper room where Jesus and the disciples were just like hanging out and having their last Passover meal. But it's much more likely that this place that filled with violent wind filled the entire house we were sitting and tongues of fire came out and divided and appeared among them and a tongue rested on each one of them. And they're filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and they spoke another language, that that happened here in the temple of God in Jerusalem, God's house. And that in this space, Peter starts to have an experience. And then he explains that whole experience, going back all the way to the prophets and then going through the prophet of Joel and others, going back from Moses and on. He starts to tell everybody, this is what's happening. God is changing God's address. And the spirit and the presence of God is coming out from the temple, out from God's house. And it is now resting on all of you. And this leads right into something Pastor Kevin or Kevin talked about in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. Living stones. Peter says, like, that experience, that crazy Shavuot experience changed and shifted my understanding of the presence of God and where to encounter the presence of God in this world. And we don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore only, although they continue to keep doing that. But we now say, come to Jesus, the living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is crazy, is it not? Isn't this radical shift, right? That now, different from every other expression of religious fidelity, this God, and the Israelites had known this for a long time, even when King Solomon built the temple, he said, well, you can't live here. God, you can't live in a house built by human hands. You're too big for this, but we'll come here to remember you. And God is now through Christ and in this moment of Shavuot fulfilled that whole promise to say, all y'all now come together. You can't be a stone off by yourself. You have to come together. And this then is where the presence of God lives. You want to experience the presence of God, come to the people of God. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 
you are now a spiritual house. Christ dwells in us, in all y'all, in us. And we are being built together. And it's hard work, and it's messy, and it's difficult, and some of you wish you could remodel the house and at least annex off one whole room, um, a right wing or a left wing, depending upon your personality, right? Some of you would like to not be part of the house at all, and you're like, well, I'm spiritual but not religious, and I follow Jesus but I'm not a Christian, and you equivocate all of that, and so then we all sit there and we say, okay, I'll be my own stone, and I'm gonna go back up there, but let's just be honest, you're just a rock sitting on a hill, it's not very impressive, me too, right? And so, but it's what Peter says when we come together, that this is the story that Christ is telling us that this is the experience. This is what happened when Acts 2 happened. That the presence of God came out and dwelt on us, in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And this is what Peter's new revelation is. This fidelity that he's had his whole life of going to the house of God, going to Jerusalem for every festival, every feast, to continue to teach there as he does throughout the rest of Acts until he moves into Asia Minor. And yet he sees that it's also bigger. It's bigger than that one place. And because of this, because all y'all, because we all now carry the presence of God, when somebody's out there looking for the presence of God, they are to come to us, to the body of Christ, and to find it. And because of that, because we are holy priests, because we are a holy people, a chosen people, a holy nation, we have to live differently. We should live differently. Peter's going to tell us it really matters how you live. You can't go around saying, we carry the presence of God in the world, and these people aren't welcome, or these people are better than these people, or we have some sort of corner on holiness and righteousness. It is because of the presence of Christ only as we come together broken and a mess as we are, that people should be able to come and, and peer in and say, something has happened here. This is what Kevin talked much about in his message, that, that some stone has been erected here, some living body of stones has joined together to build this spiritual house. Something has happened here, and I want to live, I want to dwell in that house. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. It matters how we live. We can't walk around saying we carry the presence of Christ in this world and just live any old way. And Peter, 1 Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. You realize he's saying this to a large portion of Gentiles in the Roman world, right? And this is what Omer was talking about, that the family of God is bigger than we ever thought of. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all of this happened because Jesus loves you and me. Just, just mercy. But dear friends, Peter says, I urge you as foreigners, as, as exiles. And, and Peter will say, just like Sarah and Abraham, just like the Israelites. And he connects all of us, even those not part of the Israelite story, 
right? He says, now you are part of that story. Consider yourselves as foreigners and exiles. Now abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, among the Romans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live differently. Live differently. It matters how you live. And then Peter addresses, as he continues in his letters, well, listen, Peter, maybe you're just some random weird dude with a lot of weird ideas showing up in Asia Minor, telling us, telling slaves and women that they're still part of the family of God, telling Gentiles, non-Jews, that they're part of the family of God. Maybe you're just weird and you just made all this up. Maybe you just made it all up. And Peter's like, got it. I have an answer for you. Second Peter, beginning in chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majesty glory, majestic glory, saying, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's like, you think I've made stuff up? You think these are cleverly devised myths? First of all, I could do better probably, right? And second of all, I saw stuff happened. He's like, nope, this is not cleverly devised. I have seen things. Peter's like, I've seen some things and it has messed me up in a great way forever for the rest of my life. And he starts with, I was on the mountain. I was on the mountain. I saw the resurrection. I was on that mountain and saw Elijah and Moses show up and we try to build them some tents. I've seen people healed. I, myself, Peter, was set free from prison. I had a really weird dream about dietary preferences that turned out to be about Gentiles. I have had very weird experiences. I saw the Holy Spirit fall on Gentiles. I've seen things. I've experienced things and it has changed me and changed everything forever. And it's interesting what Peter picks to say right there. He's like, I was on a mountain. I heard a voice. Elijah Moses show up. Transfiguration. I mean, you think I'd just make that up? If I were Peter, I'd be like, I saw the resurrection. Jesus was walking around. He was talking with people. We saw the wounds. He starts with transfiguration blew my mind, (laughs) which is pretty cool and awesome. But he's seen some things. And it's changed him. It's changed him forever. And he can't go back. Everything is different now. He lives his life completely differently now. And what he lives for and dies for is different because of what he has seen and experienced. How he reads the text is now different. How he understands his whole life is now different because of what he has seen and experienced. Peter is an eyewitness. He's an eyewitness to these things. He's seen them. He is given authority by Jesus himself in that, who do you say that I am? He says, bless you, Simon, son of a job, and to you I give the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's really interesting phrasing, and that binding and loosing means that he is giving the disciples the authority to make new interpretations of the text. He's given authority by Jesus himself, and he is a teacher of the text. He's a miracle worker. He's a leader of the early church, both in Jerusalem and in Asia Minor. He's going to address false teachings. He will endure terrible sufferings for Christ. And in the midst of it all, he will continue to preach hope. Hope. 
Guaranteed suffering means hope. Crazy. Doesn't work at all with the prosperity gospel, by the way. You can't go through First and Second Peter and come out with, if you make Jesus your choice, you'll drive a Rolls Royce. Peter is all about, if you make Jesus your choice, you will suffer. And there is hope in the suffering and the persecution. He reads the whole text differently as he goes on in in 2 Peter 1, where he's like, hey, we didn't make this stuff up. He continues and he says this crazy, amazing thing. He says, let me find it right here. We didn't follow clearly advised mystery made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, verse 19, so we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He's like, you want to know what the Bible is? It's full of the Holy Spirit moving and prophesying. And so he is now rethinking and rereading the whole text. In 1 Peter chapter 3.20, he says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight lives, were saved through water. And this baptism, which this prefigured or symbolized, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Peter's experience with Jesus now makes him reinterpret entirely Noah and the flood. And he's sitting here, he's like, oh, let me tell you about Noah and the flood. You think that's about a whole bunch of people being wicked and God just, you know, flooding the earth. Let me tell you about it. That's when God baptized the earth. That's when God brought the earth back to new life. That's when it all started again. And those waters, only eight people were saved. But through the waters of Christ's baptism, we're all saved. Everything changed for Peter. Everything changed. Noah's ark changed. It wasn't only that story. Now he can see it through the lens of Christ, of Christ's life, of Christ's baptism, of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, of Peter's own baptism and why he then does immersion for others. Because it's through those waters that we're saved. Years ago, we were sitting um, in a synagogue and we were listening to uh, a rabbi teach on this. It happened to be a... Um, a rabbi who also is a follower of Jesus. And he said, oh, you know, just casually, he was like, oh, you know, Noah's Ark, that's when God baptized the earth. And we sat there in the back, and we were with some friends, and we looked at each other, what? Noah's Ark baptized the earth? And we were sort of thinking, we're like, oh, water, water, dove, dove. Oh, my goodness, we're so stupid. And then we started reading Peter, and we were like, no, Peter told us that. How did we miss it? But Peter can do this type of midrash, this reinterpretation, this new comedy, because he was with Jesus and Jesus did it. And so he's doing the thing Jesus did. And he's going to grab hold of apocalyptic literature and he'll grab hold of prophetic literature and he'll start to quote in First and Second Peter. He'll go, oh, you know what? Isaiah said this, but let's reinterpret it now for these times too. Zephaniah, also this. Even he'll grab the apocryphal guy. Oh, Enoch? Yeah, let's talk about this. And because of what Peter has seen and heard and experienced, he now picks up this text and says, I think I understand it anew, afresh, an additional way. I'm grabbing hold of it and turning it. I can make a new interpretation that doesn't negate the old one, but adds an understanding and a layer now that we know who Jesus is. Peter's incredible. 
In fact, there's one scholar out there that suggests first and second Peter should be called Perke Peter, meaning that it's an early rabbinic midrash on like the gospels because Perke means like the sayings of, and there's an early rabbinic teaching, an early rabbinic book called Perke Avot, the sayings of the fathers. And like, oh yeah, we have the sayings of the fathers, lots of resonances there with Jesus's teachings and Paul's and others. And he's like, this is Perke Peter. These are the sayings of Peter. And these are the ways Peter understands and interprets his world while staying in his stream of rabbinic Judaism. But it's expanded and we're all now included into this story. As Peter writes these letters to the church then, and as we listen in and feel them being written to us today as well, he knows his life is drawing to a close. He's not writing this letter just casually, like, hey, just thought I'd write a few things down. He's saying, what do I need to tell you before I'm killed? Many scholars believe that these letters were written, at least one of them was written during the time of Nero and Nero's persecution, and that 2 Peter is likely the last letter written in our New Testament. And in 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15, he says, Therefore I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though you know them already and are established in the truth that has come to you. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to refresh your memory, since I know that my death will come soon. As indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I imagine Jesus has revealed it as well as some Roman authorities, yeah? And I will make every effort so that after my departure, he's like, I'm going to die. Here's what I want you to remember. You may be able at any time to recall these things. And then he writes this down. And he starts talking about the things that Kevin and Omer and Tom emphasized in our last sections. He starts talking about what is our identity? You are children of God. You live as those who were exiled long ago. You live as Sarah and Abraham and as the Israelites in exile. And that is your core identity. And in so, we will remain faithful to God even as we live in exile. And the sum and the total of all the things and the purpose behind all that is happening is Jesus. It is finished in him. And you get to be part of this family of God It is bigger than your household. It is bigger than your nuclear family. You should care how everybody in this world is treated because the family of God is big. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago and I was telling them how every time at Spark, I'm shocked and amazed you all come. This honestly, every Sunday. I'm like, oh my goodness, you came again. That's amazing. And and you think it's funny, but I'm, I'm serious because... First of all, I still feel like this is a grand experiment to finding out if there's anybody else out there who really loves Jesus and wants to try to sort out how to follow the way of Jesus in this world. It feels sometimes, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, lonely in our area. And travel can remind us we're not alone. Travel can remind us that we're part of a big, huge body of of Christ. But let's talk real life. Day-to-day here in Silicon Valley can feel very lonely. So it's always a gift to show up here on Sunday and see you. I'm like, huh, not alone anymore. But the other thing that happens to me every time I see you, and I don't know how God put this in my spirit a long time ago. I think it's just through our study and experience in different places. Every time I see each one of you, I think, there's somebody made in the image and likeness of God. And they showed up today. And I get to sit in the presence of one created in the image and the likeness of God. And you chose to come here 
and be a living stone. And together we can be together. But I honestly feel shocked and amazed every single weekend that we get to hang out with one another with the awareness that everybody here is made in the image and the likeness of God. Everyone we meet is aware. But maybe there's something when we come into this place, can we just tune our hearts and go, oh, a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God. I get to sit with one of God's beloved. And that just delights me to no end that I get surprised by it every time we gather. And I think that's what Peter is reminding us of. We're part of a family that's bigger than the one that only exists in our day-to-day life, in our day-to-day bubble. We are sisters. We are brothers. And we are part of a big family of God. And we are not alone. In Christ's family, wouldn't it be lovely if there were no such thing as widows, orphans, strangers, marginalized, poor, because we all came together and we were just simply sister, brother, and family. And I think that's what Peter wants to tell us. As we're living in tough and difficult times, as Peter was living in a tough, difficult time, he's like, you are still part of the family of God. And the way of Jesus changes things. So here's how I think Peter would like to end what he wants us to remember, that through Jesus, we all belong to the exiled family of Sarah and Abraham. You are kids belonging to Sarah and Abraham. He's referencing back here Isaiah. Consider Abraham your father and Sarah who gave birth to you. Consider the rock from which you were cut and the stone from which you were hewn. We are part of this big family. And we're all God's children, born again into a living hope. And in Christ, we are given a new family, a new identity, and a new future. And guys, suffering and persecution is actually a gift. And it reminds us that this Babylon slash Rome slash world that we live in is not our home. And it's not the end of the story. We have a greater hope. And we have a righteous king who reigns forever. And we are that holy priesthood, that royal nation. No matter where we live in the world. That we have Christian hope in the midst of suffering. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, 7 as he opens his first letter. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed for the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials so that genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that through perishable though perishable is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed we are have a new birth a living hope we have an inheritance and we will suffer and it's okay and one of the things and i think omer touched on this as well as tom One of the things that Peter will remind us, as they say, submit to the authorities and submit to the emperor, is that, why does this keep going so fast? Violent resistance solves nothing, and it betrays Jesus' teaching. And as Omer pointed out, this is quite something to be said from the guy that tried to cut off somebody's ear or successfully cut off somebody's ear. That we aren't to violently resist. We are to follow the way of Jesus, and we are to love our enemies. And it is such a difficult thing to do, and yet so deeply important. 
Years ago, there was a Jewish scholar of the Synoptic Gospels, David Flusser, blessed memory, and he was giving a lecture in Jerusalem, and they were asking, like, what do you think makes Jesus unique? Because he was studying all the rabbis, but he studied specifically Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he said, ah, I think very unique to Jesus, different from many of the other rabbis of his time, is Jesus' teachings to love enemies. Very different. And so somebody raised their hand in the crowd and they said, ah, so is this what you're saying? Are you saying this is what makes Christianity distinct and unique? And he said, no, no, I said it's what made Jesus' teachings distinct. I haven't seen many Christians do it. And that stuck with me. I think I heard that story maybe 20 years ago. And it's been sitting with me ever since thinking about how radical the teaching of love your enemies is and if we all did that, how different the world would look. And it sits so deep in my soul that when I sit with a friend or somebody else, as I did a few weeks ago, and they sat there and they were very angry with somebody. There was nobody in this church, by the way. All of you are very holy and sanctified. Um, so I'm not telling a story. Nobody has to worry about like their cheeks burning. It was none of you, okay? Nobody goes to work. We're sitting chatting, and the person just was very angry with somebody, and they kept just saying, I hate them. I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. And it was like, I hate them. You can keep telling me all the things you like about them, but I hate them. I was like, and it was such a jarring response in my ear because the way of Jesus is that we can't do that. And that love of enemies is so deeply centered in my very soul as very distinct of the way of Jesus and should be distinct about his followers that it felt hard to stay in the conversation. Because I kept trying to, have you ever done this? Oh, yeah, I know, but, you know, like, maybe we just dis strongly dislike that thing, right? In fact, when I was a kid growing up, my mom didn't let us say hate. We were not allowed to say it. it was like a four-letter word in our house. So if we were in an argument with mom or dad or sibling, we always were, like, shouting, I strongly dislike you right now. That was the worst. It, like, took a little bit of the punch away, you know? You really wanted to. Also, it was the thing, every time I'd say, well, what is this profane word mean, my mom would say, it means you hate that person, you want them to die. It didn't matter what the word was that I was asking about, what does this gesture mean, what does sticking your tongue out mean, it means you hate that person, you want them to die. That was the answer, the blanket answer to all of those things. So I was like, wow, we have a lot of different things that mean the same, apparently, the whole thing. I never could use any of those words or gestures because I was like, well, I don't hate them and I don't want them to die. So core and central to the teachings in the way of Jesus is to love those who persecute you. Lay down your life for them. It's so hard. It's so hard. But you know what? It works. It's just, it's shocking. Have you guys ever seen it work in your life? Like that person that you're super angry with, but if you start turning your heart and start praying towards them and asking God to give you empathy and love and kindness towards them, how it shifts you. How it shifts you. I was in a difficult circumstance years ago and was really frustrated with an individual. It was making a lot of pain in my life. And I wanted also to sort of return the suffering, right? But I didn't, and I made a kind gesture. And I gave him the kind gesture even though it was really hard and I didn't want to and it was awful and difficult and all this stuff. And then later on, when that person was questioned about my character, you know what they said? Oh, they're so nice. I was like, wow, I didn't really feel very nice, but the way of Jesus works. It works. It changes us. It changes us. So my question for us, and I think Peter's question to his community, whether in Jerusalem where Rome was ruling or whether he's in Asia Minor where Rome was ruling, is did you wake up to find yourself in Babylon? 
This is the end of Peter's letter. He talks about Rome as Babylon grabbing hold again of the prophets of Isaiah and Zephaniah and Ezekiel and others. Did you wake up and did you find yourself in Babylon? Or, Christian, did we wake up and find ourselves with some allegiance towards Babylon rather than the way of Jesus? Is the empire providing some sort of comfort for us? Some power system that we're benefiting from? Do we kind of like it? What do we do when we wake up and we find ourselves here? 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining, like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, which is just an amazing thing. Could you just wake up every morning and go, today, God, could you help me be a good steward of your manifold grace? Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Did you wake up and find yourself in Babylon? Put your head down, love, and serve. Follow Jesus. Now, do you like that first line right there, that first phrase, the end of all things is near? Did anyone ever go to a church where, or did you read the Left Behind series? Os Guinness calls it something untoward. Um, yes, uh, the end of all things is near. I don't think we talk a lot about end times here at Sparks. Everybody, can everybody name any of the times we've had an end times conversation here at Sparks? Lots of hellfire and brimstorm here, huh? Did you know? Um, Peter does talk about it, and I think it's disingenuous for us not to mention it. Um, the, one of the pastors we were hanging out with in American Samoa, I said, so pastor, what are you going to be preaching on? What did you preach on last Sunday? He goes, end times. I'm like, oh, okay. What are you going to preach on next Sunday? End times. Recognizing the times. I'm like, oh, hard. It's hard for me to preach those things. But Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, do not ignore this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but to all come to repentance. I don't know about end times. There's a joke, you could be pre-mill or post-mill, or you can be pan-mill, which is it's just all going to pan out in the end. And I'm pretty much like, we're all in God's hands, and that's a good place to be, and I'm not really worried about it. But I recognize that when we are in difficult situations, when there's mass casualties, when there are difficult disasters, when there's incredible suffering, when there is incredible evil, it's easy to want to find a way out. And I understand why Peter, who was going to be killed under Nero, crucified possibly upside down, why there was a need to ask the question, where is Jesus? And why hasn't he come yet? The end must be nearer. And I think many of us could look around the world right now, outside of our own posh circumstances here in Silicon Valley, and say, the end must be nearer. Either we're bringing it or 
it's coming or however much the suffering might cause us to look for something. Peter wants you to know that whether it's tomorrow or whether it's thousands of years for now, it is God's will that none would perish. It's God's desire that none would be lost, that all would come closer to him. And I think part of being a person who sits at the feet of Peter and listens to what he has to say is to say that there's hope beyond the world that we're in, and Peter sees a place when justice will be found. We're not belonging to this world. If you find yourself in Babylon, put your nose down, follow Jesus, remember that Jesus is coming, look busy. But if he tarries, it's okay. More people just get to come to find him. Are you in Babylon? If you are, follow Jesus. I'm in Babylon. I'm going to keep following Jesus. And I'm grateful to Peter, a life changed forever, for the gospel, for Christ. A life where, if tradition is correct, as he came to the end of his life under the persecution of the Roman Empire and was crucified, he requested to be crucified upside down. And there's two reasons why scholars debate. Some say he requested that because he said, I'm not worthy to die as my Savior died. So crucify me upside down. And other scholars suggest that Peter said, your kingdom is upside down. It's not right side out. This is not the world. That really, truly, this is not the kingdom that exists that is imperishable. Rome will be going away. This is an upside down world. So crucify me upside down in it. Whatever the way is, Peter lived a life changed forever because of his experience with Jesus. And my prayer for all of us is that we would also be transformed because of our relationship and experience with the person of Jesus Christ. And if you are a person in this space and time where you know somebody who is interested in coming to know Jesus, please come find me. Jesus has changed my life too forever. And I can't go back. And I'm grateful every day for it. We'd like to invite the team up. Um, one of Peter's probably most incredible experiences he ever had with Jesus, and I'm sure he shared many moments of table fellowship with Christ, was the night before Jesus was killed. They sat around a Passover meal, and Jesus took the elements that unleavened bread and that cup. And as they had been there, remembering that they had been set free from the horrors of slavery in Egypt, and as they sat with Rome bearing down on them, they remembered their identity, that they are free and children of God. And for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, all are welcome at this table. This is not our table. This is not our body. This is not our blood, but his. Come all who are thirsty. Come and drink. 
come all who are hungry, come and eat. The table has been prepared for you and your Messiah Jesus waits to dine with you.